Book Two, Chapter Thirteen of Off on a Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Off on a Comet by Jules Verne. Translated by Anonymous. Book Two, Chapter Thirteen. Dreary Months. Henceforth, then, with the velocity ever increasing, Gallia would reapproach the sun. Except the thirteen Englishmen who had been left at Gibraltar, every living creature had taken refuge in the dark abyss of the volcano's crater. And with those Englishmen, how had it fared? Far better than ourselves, was the sentiment that would have been universally accepted in Nina's hive. And there was every reason to conjecture that so it was. The party at Gibraltar, they all agreed, would not, like themselves, have been compelled to have recourse to a stream of lava for their supply of heat. They, no doubt, had had abundance of fuel as well as food, and in their solid casement, with its substantial walls, they would find ample shelter from the rigor of the cold. The time would have been passed at least in comfort, and perhaps in contentment, and Colonel Murphy and Major Oliphant would have had leisure more than sufficient for solving the most abstruse problems of the chessboard. All of them, too, would be happy in the confidence that when the time should come, England would have full need of praise to award to the gallant soldiers who had adhered so well and so manfully to their post. It did, indeed, more than once occur to the minds both of Servadac and his friends that, if their condition should become one of extreme emergency, they might, as a last resource, betake themselves to Gibraltar, and there seek a refuge. But their former reception had not been the kindest, and they were little disposed to renew an acquaintanceship that was marked by so little cordiality. Not in the least that they would expect to meet any inhospitable rebuff. Far from that, they knew well enough that Englishmen, whatever their faults, would be the last to abandon their fellow creatures in the hour of distress. Nevertheless, except the necessity became far more urgent than it had hitherto proved, they resolved to endeavor to remain in their present quarters. Up till this time no casualties had diminished their original number, but to undertake so long a journey across that unsheltered expanse of ice could scarcely fail to result in the loss of some of their party. However great was the desire to find a retreat for every living thing in the deep hollow of the crater, it was found necessary to slaughter almost all the domestic animals before the removal of the community from Nina's hive. To have stabled them all in the cavern below would have been quite impossible, whilst to have left them in the upper galleries would only have been to abandon them to a cruel death, and since meat could be preserved for an indefinite time in the original store-places, now colder than ever, the expedient of killing the animals seemed to recommend itself as equally prudent and humane. Naturally the captain and Ben Zoof were most anxious that their favorite horses should be saved, and accordingly, by dint of the greatest care, all difficulties in the way were overcome, and Zephyr and Galette were conducted down the crater, where they were installed in a large hole and provided with forage, which was still abundant. Birds, subsisting only on scraps thrown out to them, did not cease to follow the population in its migration, and so numerous did they become that multitudes of them had repeatedly to be destroyed. The general rearrangement of the new residence was no easy business, and occupied so much time that the end of January arrived before they could be said to be fairly settled, and then began a life of dreary monotony. 
then seemed to creep over everyone a kind of moral torpor as well as physical lassitude, which Servadac, the Count, and the Lieutenant did their best not only to combat in themselves, but to counteract in the general community. They provided a variety of intellectual pursuits. They instituted debates in which everybody was encouraged to take part. They read aloud and explained extracts from the elementary manuals of science, or from the books of adventurous travel which their library supplied, and Russians and Spaniards, day after day, might have been seen gathered round a large table, giving their best attention to instruction which should send them back to Mother Earth less ignorant than they had left her. Selfish and morose, Hakkabut could never be induced to be present at these social gatherings. He was far too much occupied in his own appropriated corner, either in conning his accounts or in counting his money. Altogether, with what he had before, he now possessed the round sum of a 150,000 francs, half of which were in sterling gold, but nothing could give him any satisfaction while he knew that the days were passing, and that he was denied the opportunity of putting out his capital in advantageous investments, or securing a proper interest. Neither did Palmyrin Rosette find leisure to take any share in the mutual intercourse. His occupation was far too absorbing for him to suffer it to be interrupted, and to him, living as he did perpetually in a world of figures, the winter days seemed neither long nor wearisome. Having ascertained every possible particular about his comet, he was now devoting himself with equal ardor to the analysis of all the properties of the satellite Narina, to which he appeared to assert the same claim of proprietorship. In order to investigate Narina, it was indispensable that he should make several actual observations at various points of the orbit. And for this purpose he repeatedly made his way up to the grotto above, where, in spite of the extreme severity of the cold, he would persevere in the use of his telescope till he was all but paralyzed. But what he felt more than anything was the want of some retired apartment, where he could pursue his studies without hindrance or intrusion. It was about the beginning of February when the professor brought his complaint to Captain Servadac, and begged him to assign him a chamber, no matter how small, in which he should be free to carry on his task in silence and without molestation. So readily did Servadac promise to do everything in his power to provide him with the accommodation for which he asked, that the professor was put into such a manifest good temper that the captain ventured to speak upon the matter which was ever uppermost in his mind. I do not mean, he began timidly, to cast the least imputation of inaccuracy upon any of your calculations, but would you allow me, my dear professor, to suggest that you should revise your estimate of the duration of Gallia's period of revolution? It is so important, you know, so all-important. The difference of one half-minute, you know, would so certainly mar the expectation of reunion with the earth. And seeing a cloud gathering on Rosette's face, he added, I am sure Lieutenant Procope would be only too happy to render you any assistance in the revision. Sir, said the professor, bridling up, I want no assistant. My calculations want no revision. I never make an error. I have made my reckoning as far as Gallia is concerned. I am now making a like estimate of the elements of Nerina. Conscious of how impolitic it would be to press this matter further, the captain casually remarked that he should have supposed that all the elements of Nerina had been calculated long since by astronomers on the earth. It was about as unlucky a speech as he could possibly have made. The professor glared at him fiercely. Astounding, sir, he exclaimed. Yes, Nerina was a planet then, 
Everything that appertained to the planet was determined, but Nerina is a moon now. And do you not think, sir, that we have a right to know as much about our moon as those terrestrials? And he curled his lip as he spoke with a contemptuous emphasis, Know of theirs? I beg pardon, said the corrected captain. Well then, never mind, replied the professor, quickly appeased. Only will you have the goodness to get me a proper place for study? I will, as I promised, do all I can, answered Servadac. Very good, said the professor. No immediate hurry, an hour hence will do. But in spite of this condensation on the part of the man of science, some hours had to elapse before any place of retreat could be discovered likely to suit his requirements. But at length a little nook was found in the side of the cavern just large enough to hold an armchair and a table, and in this the astronomer was soon ensconced to his entire satisfaction. Buried thus, nearly nine hundred feet below ground, the Gallians ought to have had unbounded mental energy to furnish an adequate reaction to the depressing monotony of their existence. But many days would often elapse without any one of them ascending to the surface of the soil, and had it not been for the necessity of obtaining fresh water, it seemed almost probable that there never would have been an effort made to leave the cavern at all. A few excursions, it is true, were made in the downward direction. The three leaders, with Ben Zoof, made their way to the lower depths of the crater, not with the design of making any further examination as to the nature of the rock, for although it might be true enough that it contained thirty percent of gold, it was as valueless to them as granite, but with the intention of ascertaining whether the subterranean fire still retained its activity. Satisfied upon this point, they came to the conclusion that the eruption which had so suddenly ceased in one spot had certainly broken out in another. February, March, April, May passed wearily by, but day succeeded to day with such gloomy sameness that it was little wonder that no notice was taken of the lapse of time. The people seemed rather to vegetate than to live, and their want of vigor became at times almost alarming. The readings around the long table ceased to be attractive, and the debates, sustained by a few, became utterly wanting in animation. The Spaniards could hardly be roused to quit their beds, and seemed to have scarcely enough energy to eat. The Russians, constitutionally of more enduring temperament, did not give way to the same extent, but the long and drear confinement was beginning to tell upon them all. Servadac, the Count, and the lieutenant all knew well enough that it was the want of air and exercise that was the cause of much of this mental depression. But what could they do? The most serious remonstrances on their part were entirely in vain. In fact, they themselves occasionally fell a prey to the same lassitude both of body and mind. Long fits of drowsiness, combined with an utter aversion of food, would overcome them. It almost seemed as if their entire nature had become degenerate, and that, like tortoises, they could sleep and fast till the return of summer. Strange to say, little Nina bore her hardships more bravely than any of them. Flitting about, coaxing one to eat, another to drink, rousing Pablo as often as he seemed yielding to the common languor, the child became the life of the party. Her merry prattle enlivened the gloom of the grim cavern like the sweet notes of a bird, her gay Italian songs broke the monotony of the depressing silence, and almost unconscious as the half-dormant population of Gallia were of her influence, they still would have missed her bright presence sorely. The months still glided on. How, it seemed impossible for the inhabitants of the living tomb to say, there was a dead level of dullness. 
At the beginning of June the general torpor appeared slightly to relax its hold upon its victims. This partial revival was probably due to the somewhat increased influence of the sun, still far, far away. During the first half of the Gallian year, Lieutenant Procope had taken careful note of Rosette's monthly announcements of the comet's progress, and he was able now, without reference to the professor, to calculate the rate of advance on its way back towards the sun. He found that Gallia had recrossed the orbit of Jupiter, but was still at the enormous distance of 197 million leagues from the sun, and he reckoned that in about four months it would have entered the zone of the telescopic planets. Gradually, but uninterruptedly, life and spirits continued to revive, and by the end of the month Servadac and his little colony had regained most of their ordinary physical and mental energies. Ben Zuf, in particular, roused himself with redoubled vigor, like a giant refreshed from his slumbers. The visits, consequently, to the long-neglected galleries of Mina's Hive became more and more frequent. One day an excursion was made to the shore. It was still bitterly cold, but the atmosphere had lost nothing of its former stillness, and not a cloud was visible from horizon to zenith. The old footmarks were all as distinct as on the day in which they had been imprinted and the only portion of the shore where any change was apparent was in the little creek. Here the elevation of the ice had gone on increasing, until the schooner and the tartan had been uplifted to a height of a hundred and fifty feet, not only rendering them quite inaccessible, but exposing them to all but certain destruction in the event of a thaw. Isaac Hackabut, immovable from the personal oversight of his property in the cavern, had not accompanied the party and consequently was in blissful ignorance of the fate that threatened his vessel. A good thing the old fellow wasn't there to see, observed Ben Zuf. He would have screamed like a peacock. What a misfortune it is, he added, speaking to himself, to have a peacock's voice without its plumage. During the months of July and August, Gallia advanced 164 million leagues along her orbit. At night the cold was still intense, but in the daytime the sun, here full upon the equator, caused an appreciable difference of twenty degrees in the temperature. Like birds, the population spent whole days exposed to its grateful warmth, rarely returning till nightfall to the shade of their gloomy home. This springtime, if such it may be called, had a most enlivening influence upon them all. Hope and courage revived as day by day the sun's disk expanded in the heavens, and every evening the earth assumed a greater magnitude amongst the fixed stars. It was distant yet, but the goal was cheeringly in view. "'I can't believe that yonder little speck of light contains my mountain of Montmartre,' said Ben Zuf, one night, after he had been gazing long and steadily at the far-off world. "'You will, I hope, some day find out that it does,' answered his master. "'I hope so,' said the orderly, without moving his eye from the distant sphere. After meditating a while, he spoke again. I suppose Professor Rosette couldn't make his comet go straight back, could he? Hush! cried Servadac. Ben Zuf understood the correction. No, continued the captain, it is not for man to disturb the order of the universe. That belongs to a higher power than ours. End of Book Two, Chapter Thirteen.